Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Donald Trump was convinced China is manipulating its currency until he wasn't convinced anymore. He thought NATO was obsolete until he declared it isn't obsolete anymore. He didn't want any intervention in the Syrian civil war until he started bombing. Fred Barnes is here to tell us how and why Donald Trump has proved to be so remarkably changeable as president. And then we're going to talk with Andrew Ferguson, who's just back from Philadelphia, where he went to the New Museum of the American Revolution. What sort of history does the New Museum teach? All that next on the Confab. And now we get the confab kicked off in fine form with Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Welcome, Fred. Thank you. Glad to be here as ever. Glad to have you. I'm going to start off the confab here by reading to you um, a piece of savvy analysis, and we'll see whether you can figure out who said this. (laughs) Okay. Um, There was a magazine article that began by writing, President Trump has changed his policies in his first 100 days in office more than any president in the post-World War II era, or perhaps any president ever. Hmm. Who was the savvy (laughs) analyst? Who who would have come to (laughs) a statement like that? Well, I'll I'll take credit for it, or maybe it's blame, but I'm stuck with it. Ding, ding, (laughs) ding, 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 ding. You got it right. Fred Barnes. (laughs) So, so Donald Trump changing this this way, that way, the other mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. What what's going on? Well, he he uh, actually knows a few things now. Remember when he, in his campaign he would just make he'd make statements, assertions, and and that was about it. There was nothing beneath them. There were no facts. Uh, there was no argumentation. It was just all assertions. Well, that's hard to get by as president with that, and now he has people who know things and can tell him things. So he's learned a good bit. So and now he's changed from what he said during the campaign and on issue after issue. What are, what are some of the biggest issues mm-hmm. that he's had big sea change kind of alterations on? Well, he's had some on immigration in which, uh, you know, he talks about the dreamers, these young people whose parents dragged them across the border uh, and, uh, and uh, that they can stay. He's uh, changed most strikingly, uh, in the uh, uh, Syrian civil war. You know, that was a no-no to go in there to be a part of that. Now uh, now he's bombed uh, a Syrian airfield. So uh, that is intervention. Um, I like I, the way that, he, that Trump, when he changes policies, he, he had been going around saying that NATO was obsolete. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just said one day, NATO is no longer obsolete. <laughs> this really set off uh, the New York Times. Uh, because uh, they wanted him to say, I was wrong the first time. But he, <laughs> but Trump doesn't say that. He just changes. And uh, and as Peter Baker of the Times pointed out, well, but NATO hasn't changed. Only Trump has changed. And I thought that was kind of petty to go after him on that because he he wound up on the right side, being pro-NATO. Right. Would, would the uh, analysts who are criticizing him for changing his policies, would they rather that he remain... <laughs> 
wrong. Yeah, I don't think they would. They like uh, they like him to change so they can uh, dismiss his changes as flip flops and things like that who don't matter. Oh, that stuff wasn't well thought out or 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 anything like that. Well. Is there reason to believe that this is sort of the education of Donald Trump? Yes. Or is there reason to believe that he takes whatever line from the last person he talked to and that where he is now Mm -hmm. is going to change again when Mm -hmm. he talks to somebody else? Well, those aren't mutually exclusive, uh, those ideas. But uh, I think uh, as long as we have the pretty much a, a, the same cast for a couple of years here in his cabinet as his national security advisor, as advisors who have helped him uh, 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 put together these policies. Uh, I don't think there, I don't think there will be uh, any big changes. Look, Trump is dependent on all these people. They're the ones who've created the policies, and and he's endorsed them. Uh, I mean, this is the way presidents often operate. So, I think he's sort of beholden to these people who are who have given him very good advice. Uh, and and his, in one way, you can tell it's good advice. His poll numbers are up a little bit. So, one of the things you talk about in the article is that uh, Trump, because he has no fixed ideology. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier for him to maneuver yeah. mm-hmm. and find a mm-hmm. new policy. Yeah, sure. I mean, Eric, you're a conservative. I'm a conservative. Uh, you would really, th- really think twice uh, about advocating some huge tax cut, uh, or rather tax increase. Uh, you know, and say, gee, I don't. You know, I don't think government ought to be doing that and taking all our money and everything. And and we'd have a hard time doing it. Trump, be easy. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there's no umbrella. There's no, I mean, there's just no set of ideas from which uh, uh, all his policies would stem. Do things get a little easier if Trump can settle into some, some policies that have some meat to them? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the analogies you use in, in your article um, is that Donald Trump is like a talented basketball player <laughs> who's always in foul trouble. Yeah. And if you're in foul trouble, it limits how aggressive you can be and how successful you can be mm-hmm. on, on defense especially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so does Trump get to a place where he learns to play a little smarter mm-hmm. and not put himself with uh, four fouls on mm-hmm. the board? Well, he's he's uh, gotten a little better, but uh, I think he has still has four fouls, and so he's on the bench uh, more than he <laughs> should be. It's uh, You know all the distractions he creates with – with tweets and and he makes some crazy statements every now and then. He's gotten better, but it's still uh, he still he still fouls a lot. So, how have Trump's supporters and his detractors reacted to the changes in policy? Well, the the, uh, the detractors are just oh, these don't mean anything. He doesn't know anything. Uh, these are just ideas that. Uh, Somebody else dreamed up, and, and and we can't give Trump any credit. So far, his core supporters, you know, the white working class, among other uh, uh, groups, and haven't really complained bitterly. You know, the, the mainstream media goes to all these towns in eastern Kentucky and you know coal mining areas of southern Illinois and finding and hoping and hoping that people uh, are going to say, "Well, Trump has really let us down." You know, we we voted for him, and now what's he doing? He's bombing in Syria. We didn't want that. You know, I mean, but, but I mean that's ridiculous. I mean, these are people that care about what they like is the economy to get better. Uh, maybe some jobs will come, uh, and I don't think they've given up on him yet. But uh, 
uh, he still has some things that he needs to do to satisfy them. Are there any things that he absolutely cannot do and retain <clears throat> the core supporters? Well, that's a you know that's an interesting question. I really I really hadn't thought of that. You know, he could name some people to his cabinet that that were so uh, atrocious or so loathed. You know, what if he said, uh, uh, well, you know, I want to be bipartisan, so I want to get together with these Democrats. And I think that uh, you know Hillary Clinton had had some real experience as Secretary <laughs> of State, and Rex Tillerson he can be uh, he can do something else, and I'll I'll put Hillary Clinton there. Um, and you know, and Huma, don't forget yeah. Huma Abedin. Oh, yes. No, there is. I, I was just teasing on that. But there is one thing uh, that he could do that I think would alienate his supporters, and that is to say, you know, we tried uh, with the repeal and replace of Obamacare. Eh, let's just stick with Obamacare. Is he in the same place on the wall? No, the wall he wants to build, and and uh, and and liberals are are so stupid about the wall because it is for them what it will uh, if the wall is built it will produce c- comprehensive immigration reform. It's the one thing that uh, a lot of conservatives and any immigration people uh, will take as proof uh, that we finally sealed the border. I'm not for the wall, but uh, uh, personally, uh, but I'm willing to accept it as the price you have to pay to get comprehensive immigration reform to straighten out our horrible immigration system. Which is, which is of course, the reason why Democrats used to support building the wall <laughs> years and years yeah. ago mm-hmm. in the hope that it would produce just that kind of mm-hmm. reform. Well, then they came to the idea, you heard it from President Obama, would say, well, I know, we build a wall, and then they won't pass comprehensive immigration reform. Maybe he was right. I doubt it. So does Donald Trump continue to grow in office? You know, I hate that term, but he has grown in office. He's not, uh, you know, he's not seven feet tall yet, but he's, uh, but he has grown some. He's learned that he had to, he had to know things. You know, he has paid attention. You know, you hear from people uh, in the administration that are, say they're surprised to find that Donald Trump's a pretty good listener. You know, you never had that feeling during the campaign that he was <laughs> ever listening to anybody but himself. But but he realizes that, uh, you know, the old saying, particularly in Washington, that knowledge is power. Uh, and, and, and even a president needs a good bit of knowledge. Fred Barnes, executive editor of The Weekly Standard, thanks for joining us on The Confab. I enjoyed it as ever. If you like this sort of inside scoop and analysis you get here at the Confab, come and join us in June for this year's Weekly Standard Summit at Colorado's premier resort, the Broadmoor. The summit features two days of in-depth discussions on the new political scene and features special guest speakers such as Charles Krauthammer, the Wall Street Journal's Kim Strassel, and the Washington Examiner's Selena Zito. And, of course, from the Weekly Standard, Steve Hayes, Bill Crystal, and Confab regular Fred Barnes. For more information or to make a reservation, go to weeklystandardevents.com. Now the Confab is happy to welcome Mr. Andrew Ferguson, senior editor of the Weekly Standard, to the Confab. Andy, how you doing? I'm doing great, Eric. Andy, you just got back from Philadelphia, where there's a new museum dedicated to the American Revolution. And, um, you know, 
when I hear about this, I, I think back very happy thoughts, very happy thoughts when in high school um, I went on a school trip that brought us to Philadelphia and we went to Independence Hall and you went into Independence Hall and there is the assembly room where the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, it was all hammered out and um, and it was sort of this sacred space and it was very quiet as a sacred space is, tends to be. And uh, that was part of the power of visiting Independence Hall was the sort of quiet sacredness of the space. Right. I, I take it the, the new museum of the American Revolution ain't much on quietness. No. <laughs> no, museums aren't these days. I'm happy to report, though, that the uh, Independence Hall and its uh, often neglected uh, younger brother, Congress Hall next door, are, are still both extremely moving, wonderful experience that the National Park Service has managed to preserve. The new... Uh, Museum of the American Revolution is uh, more or less privately financed, and it isn't really a government institution or park service institution. But it is like all well-funded museums today, which is it just is incredibly noisy. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, everything is sort of darkly lit except for these pinpoints of light that so you're attention is directed is towards it subterranean it is it's it's not as bad as some i've been into for example the the museum of the world war one out in kansas city is i mean it's like you're walking around in a um you know like in a sewer or something some sort of underground tunnel maybe it's meant to be like trench warfare well it is it is kind of and and you know that you know, there's things to be said for that uh it's basically manipulative in that They want to get a certain kind of behavior out of the people who go through the museum, and museums are, I guess, inherently that way. But the way they do it now— The main behavior that is trying to be uh, produced is to exit by the gift shop. (laughs) Right, (laughs) right. Well, yeah, I've actually had museum designers tell me that, that it has to come out somewhere right by the gift shop. Um, although interestingly, it doesn't at the at the Museum of the American Revolution. So anyway, they've they've employed all the tools with multimedia and every digital kind of gimmick that you can uh, that their budget would allow, and it's basically pitched at a level to, as I say in the article, a kind of a uh, slightly dim, constantly distracted middle schooler. Um, you know, they're all walking around with their iPhones and. Um, uh, trying, you know, with almost limitless possibilities to look at anything but the exhibit right in front of them. And so the museum designers decide that, you know, their main accomplishment is to grab that kid's attention. Although it's it's strange to me how you expect to get the attention of kids who have a screen in their hand by putting in front of them more screens. How how does the screen compete with the screen that's already in hand? Right, right. Well, they're very similar, actually. And that's where I think that the museum designers are making a tactical mistake. It's kind of a losing battle because while the iPhones are going to be constantly updated, you're going to have um, ah. uh, you know all kinds of new gimmicks in the iPhone. 
the museum is what the museum is, and it's until it's revamped twenty years from now, it's going to fall behind the iPhone. Can and you really imagine what that technology is going to look like fifteen years from now? No, and I won't see it because I'll be, it's I'll like be the, long gone. It'll by be then. like the the museum of the eight track tape. Yes, right, right, yeah, beta. Um, <laughs> but so anyway, the it's it's a the only museum in America that's dedicated completely to telling the story of the American Revolution from the beginning to the end. Uh, and it's Which so is good. an excellent and, idea. Absolutely. It's, and, and it's in the right place. It's just down Chestnut Street from um, Independence Hall. Uh, it's in a beautifully designed building by Robert Stern. Uh, clearly a lot of ingenuity and scholarship and they, they hard work get Gary? went into it. No, <laughs> I don't think Gary would want to do anything like that. But I should also say about the screens, there are lots of screens, of course, in the museum. But the other technique they use is you know, what they call these immersive experiences, which aren't really particularly immersive. But, you know, you walk into a little... Um, into a little place that's made up to look like the old original Liberty Tree in Boston on Boston Common, where all the colonists, colonists would would debate and so on. And you go into another one, and it tries to recreate the Battle of Brandywine with lots of smoke and explosions. Surround and so on. sound. Surround and sound, and then the floor shakes and stuff like that. Um, so it's not just about screens, but um, it is about grabbing the attention of... Uh, a very distracted young person. Now, you have written, I, I may get the, the, the term of art wrong, but you, you created a term of art for what you called the magic of stuff. Uh, I think that was it. Oh, yeah. Which yeah, yeah. was in, in writing about uh, a Lincoln Museum, I believe, um, in Illinois. Yeah. Um, you, you wrote that there is incredible... For all the screens and all of the surround sound and all of this, the real power is in stuff. The the hat that that Abe Lincoln wore. Right. It it's it's not sexy, but it's powerful because Abe Lincoln actually wore it. Right, right. Um, do they have stuff? Is there magic stuff at the museum? Well, the core of the collection was they do. the The core of the collection was actually collected in the early part of the uh, 20th century by an eccentric Episcopal priest who was in love with George Washington. And the main item that he got uh, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century was uh, the battlefield tent that Washington used throughout the war. There's only about half of it that survives. But this guy bought it from um, Washington's heirs, who were deeply in debt, I guess. And uh, it's it is definitely the centerpiece of the museum. They want you to be in awe of this big strip of Kansas, uh, canvas. And <laughs> they, they've put it behind glass in a theater dedicated simply to the tent itself. And you, you kind of sit there and they're kind of, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're telling you about the revolution and George Washington and he made all these decisions. And then slowly the lights come up and you see the actual object itself. It's kind of like overdone. I mean, it's a little Catholic churchy. I'm speaking as a Catholic myself, you know, sort of like the Shroud of Turin. You're all supposed to stand there and kind of venerate it as an object. But it's still fantastic. It's one of the great, great relics of American history, so you really can't uh, fault them for that. 
You know, it's one of the great failings of the um, of the Museum of the American Indian here in D.C. is they have this trove of stuff, and they put so little of it actually on display. There is on display reference to Indians at the uh, American Revolution Museum. And how did that come yeah. about? Well, the... Um the museum was financed. It had three main donors. One is the taxpayer of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Another is a philanthropist named Jerry Lenfist. And the third is the Oneida Indian Nation, which is um, up in New York mostly. And they make a lot of money from a casino up there and some other businesses that they run, including a chain of gas stations. And so they very much wanted to be part of the museum uh, because there were Oneida Indians who actually sided with the American cause in the Revolutionary War. So as a consequence, they gave $10 million plus to the Museum of the American Revolution. And you really get to learn a lot about about the Oneida you're Nation. Not, you're not suggesting that the amount of, of coverage given to the Oneida Nation in this museum was transactional. Uh, there's The quid pro quo is so obvious <laughs> that they don't even bother to deny it. What are the lessons that this museum teaches? I take it, as you suggest, that every museum has some lesson that it wants to teach. Right. Uh, so what what's the big takeaway? To its favor, I have to say that that they really do want some... The main thing they want a visitor to take away is how fragile the revolution was, how easily things could have gone wrong were it not for the character and choices of the colonists themselves. There's also the usual kind of multicultural pandering where there's uh, sort of a social history emphasis on on um, favored groups and there's as a result kind of a downplaying on the greatness of Washington and Franklin and um, John Adams and so on uh, but you know this you got to take that nowadays in um, museums it's all historians are sort of obsessed with history through say, feminist studies or Native American studies or however they approach. If only the feminists had come up with $10 million, they could have, yeah. just think of what they could have done. I don't know. I bet Gloria Steinem could come up with $10 million. (laughs) But it's not the kind of thing that they want to support, I guess. One of the things you point out in the the article writing about the museum in the Weekly Standard this week is, is just how difficult, though, it is to do the ordinary person narrative. Because if somebody, if their narrative actually survives 200 plus years, it's usually because there was something extraordinary about their life, not that um, their lives were ordinary. Right. And social history is the discipline that's being applied here, which is to tell the story of this particular event, the revolution, through the eyes of common people. But as you say, common people, if we know anything about them, probably weren't common. They were, and therefore are not really, um, by social history's lights, um, the object of attention. So what that means is that given the lack of written record, I mean, aside from very dry you know, court records, church records, um, dates of marriages, births and deaths, and so on, Um, there's very little known about any given individual, so they kind of make it up. You know, they dramatize it, as they say, in the case of five uh, enslaved Africans who were uh, 
um, tried to bolt for freedom during the revolution. And they tell these stories and they're quite vivid and, and uh, interesting. But as they say, these are dramatizations because there's no written record of, of these, what kind of travails these people went through. We don't even know when they died. Um, so I think that that idea of sort of filling it in the blank spaces with the imagination of uh, professional historians is probably not a good idea. How much tearing down of the founding fathers is there? It's, it would seem to be the, the the natural thing of our time to take the great man and say not only does the great man not matter in history that much, but by the way, these guys weren't really that great. After all, they were racist, sexist. Right. They, they weren't as enlightened as we are, even though they were supposedly enlightened uh, followers of the Enlightenment. Uh, so that that's kind of a way of pandering to the visitor saying, oh, you know, look at these people. They didn't understand all the things that we understand nowadays. And uh, But there isn't that much anti-heroic stuff. As I say, the, the, the real theme of the play, which is per, per completely accurate, is the fragility of the revolution, that the revolution didn't have to turn out the way it did, and uh, it could have been a lot worse were it not for the character of the men, sorry to say, uh, who, who actually started the revolution and saw it through. Andy Ferguson, senior editor of the Weekly Standard, author of the new piece in the magazine about the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. Check out the museum and be sure to check out Andy's article at weeklystandard.com. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.